Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. Good morning, church. Thank you for coming. I was telling the first service that I have this recurring nightmare. I actually have two recurring nightmares in my life. The one is that I go for a test and I'm unprepared. I don't know that it's happening and I've got to be in the examination hall. The second recurring nightmare is that I come to church to speak and nobody arrives. (laughs) So, so far, you are an answer to prayer this morning. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. God has um, had me undone this week in preparing for this morning. And I pray that this morning that you would not hear more theology. I pray that you will encounter the heart of your father as one of his beloved, as somebody who has been chosen, who has been set apart to do incredible things because the work that is in you that he wants you to do for his kingdom, he already destined it. He wrote it in your book and he is empowering you to be a beautiful heavenly experience here on earth for everybody around you. There are people in this room today that have thought that the calling was for the the earlier days. And God is going to move something in you this morning and say, it is time for you to come back. It is time for you to serve again because I have called you. I have chosen you. I have picked you for my team and you were my first pick. So if God stirs in your heart something this morning, do not say no, because this is not about me coming to speak. This is about you encountering the Father and you hearing the words from Him. Okay, I'm going to start my timer now. (laughs) Søren Kierkegaard was a Danish theologian, philosopher, and social commentator, an influencer, in 1813. He was also an incredibly gifted storyteller. And if you're familiar with his stories, you'll know that many of his stories carried a bit of a sting. If you can stomach the sting and you enjoy a good challenge, there's a particular story called the parable of the ducks that has been attributed to him and is a well-known favorite. In the story, He describes an imaginary town where only ducks live. And every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their homes and down the road to their local church. They waddle into their pews, they squat, and the duck choir comes up and leads all the ducks in this beautiful time of singing. And then the duck minister comes up and reads from his duck Bible, or hers. (laughs) And he says this, ducks, God has given you wings. With wings, you can fly and you can mount up like eagles. No walls can hold you. No fences can confine you. You have wings. God has given you wings and you can fly. 
and all of the ducks are incredibly inspired and motivated, and together they shout, Amen. <sighs> and then the service closes, and they all just waddle home. with no use of wings and just more waddling in their week. One of the saddest possibilities for us as Christians is that we don't live in the full experience of what God has for us here on earth. As a child of the King, chosen, holy, beloved, and that we miss out on understanding what it means to bring heaven to earth as we live out our heavenly identity in the days that we have here. You see, heaven is not a place that you should be waiting for. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and inside of me. And if the Holy Spirit inside of us shows on the outside of us, we bring a heavenly experience to everyone around us. That is not the waddling life. That is a life that takes flight into freedom. When we replicate the nature of our Heavenly Father and when we perpetuate His family culture, we bring heaven to earth. Now, when our children were young, Robin and I made sure that they brushed their teeth. In our family, we wanted to have a culture of teeth brushing. My son is here this morning, and he has recently got engaged. And his wife is going to thank me for the culture of teeth brushing that we established in our home. But sometimes a two-year-old doesn't always understand the benefits of teeth brushing. And teeth brushing can be an inconvenient interruption in their lives. And sometimes in our children's resistance, I would catch myself thinking, if only you knew how beneficial this would be for you. If only you knew the pain that will be avoided in your life if you just develop the simple discipline and follow the family culture of teeth brushing. Now, in our house, we had a rule. They could brush happy or they could brush sad, but they were going to brush their teeth. <laughs> and now that they are wonderfully mature adults, I don't check on their teeth brushing. Matt, how was this morning? Sometimes I wonder if our Heavenly Father looks at us like this. There's a culture established by the nature of our Father. 
He's placed the Holy Spirit within us. He's given us everything we need to live in this heavenly culture. He's given us the word of God to guide us as our instruction. And sometimes it seems like an inconvenient interruption in our lives. But he knows what is good for us. He knows what works. And he knows how much pain could be avoided. And he's like, come on, guys. Whoa, I almost fell off the stage. Come on, guys. Just brush. This works. This is a family culture that brings heaven to earth. When you replicate my nature and perpetuate what I have told you to do, and the Holy Spirit inside of you comes outside of you, we bring a heavenly experience to everyone around us. It's time for heavenly culture. The presence of God is not something that we wait for to be in in heaven. And as wonderful as that experience is going to be, the presence of God exists in you and me. And it needs to be shown outside of you and me, not just in our holy huddles or in our quiet times at home, but with the people that we engage with. You are a piece of heaven on earth and people need you to bring the presence of God to them so that they can experience a father who loves them, who has chosen them, and who calls them his beloved. I am in so much trouble. I'm off-piste. Let's see if I can bring my way back. So I want to start with a little bit of self-disclosure. I waddle a lot. In fact, if there was an Olympic Games category for waddling, I could be wearing the gold this morning. And on Tuesday, I had a waddling day while I was preparing this. And my husband rather beautifully held me up and helped me waddle through and put me back on the path. Now, this is when I find myself waddling. When I start believing things about myself that God does not believe about me. When I slip in to thinking who I am is about what I do, what I have, or what people say about me, I start waddling. Because the truth is, I am chosen, I am holy, set apart, and I am beloved. And if I can hold on to that identity, I fly like an eagle. There's another time I start waddling, and that is when I start behaving in ways that are contrary to the culture of the family set by the nature of the father. In other words, when I stop brushing my teeth, when I take the scripture and I don't behave in ways that Jesus says, my baby girl, this is how I want you to walk. This is what a soaring life looks like. And when I'm like indignant, no thanks, dad. I'm not going to brush tonight. You can't make me. That's when the waddling starts. Now, the incredible thing is the difference of the father, our heavenly father, and Robin and ours family culture is we made our children brush. But God doesn't make you brush. He's given you free choice. You choose. You choose whether you waddle home or whether you want to fly. And that is a powerful choice that each of you is going to have this morning. 
This morning, babes, I'm only three minutes behind. This morning, I'm going to speak from exactly the same passage that I spoke from last time. And instead of focusing on the topic of forgiveness, I'm going to speak about a topic called bearing with each other. So interestingly, in the passage Colossians chapter 3, which is what I spoke on last time, bearing with each other comes before the words forgiving each other. And so this really this morning is part one of my part two talk that you heard a few weeks ago. And we might even have another part one, part one, part one as we go back, because every time I get into the scripture, more words come alive to me. To fully understand the concept of what it means to bear with one another, I believe that we have to go deeply into the text. Because our cultural understanding and the translations that some Bibles use, they use the word putting up with each other, I I think, for what it's worth, completely misses out on what bearing with each other means. So we're going to go deeply into these words, and it's going to take a little bit of time. But I hope that none of you leave here without understanding what God has created you to be. So, uh, verse 12. So, as those of you who have been chosen by God, you have been chosen by God. I remember in high school, there were two kids that were chosen to pick teams for a sporting event. And I know it's hard to believe but with this physique, but I was not the first pick. In fact, I was the last pick that day. I've been offered a lift three times on a run. But the thing is, with God, somebody's dying here. (laughs) The thing is, with God, I am chosen. I am his first pick. Out of all the ducks in the church, he picked me first. And you know what? The heart of God is so plentiful that you are his first pick as well. And so are you. And so are you. And Lynn, you are God's first pick. If he's choosing teams, he's like, I want you on my team. You are my best player. I'm picking you first. You are chosen. You are God's first pick. Not because what you can do, not because of what you have, but because he decided out of his grace and mercy that you are worth picking. Say after me, I am chosen. I am God's first pick. And if that isn't enough, you are holy. You are holy. We think of God being holy. You are holy. That word means to be set apart, to be different from the rest. When I was a little girl, um, it was time for my brother to go to his confirmation classes in the Anglican church. And he didn't want to go on his own, so I went early. So I went about a year early. I think I was about 12 years old. And I went every Friday afternoon. 
And every Friday, the priest would talk to us and I would go home and I would do my homework because that's what you do, right? So I would study all the stuff. And I remember coming back and asking him questions on a Friday afternoon and saying, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And what was happening to me inside was I was beginning to experience what it meant to be holy. And I was looking at this priest and going like, dude, you are not the one that is the holy one here. This is not a ladder of holiness. I'm 12 years old and I'm holy and I have just as much access to the Father as you have. The individual priesthood of the believer, George and Richard are not the holy ones. You are holy. You have been set apart by God to do beautiful things for him. And you are his beloved This is where I came undone this week. You see, when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water, the father said something to him. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That same word is used over you. You have the same amount of beloved with the father that Jesus, his son, had with him. Does that not just... does that do to you? You see, it doesn't matter that you're not somebody else's beloved because you are enough of God's beloved to fill that space in your heart. And there is a space in your heart that only God can fill because you are his beloved. We search all kinds of places to try and fill the space that only God can fill because we have not had a revelation that we are God's beloved, just like Jesus is God's beloved. You are God's beloved. He looks at you and he says, my beautiful daughter, I love you as much as I love my son. You are my beloved and I have got good things for you. And I am wrapping my arms around you and I am keeping you safe. And you will have good things and you will see good things. And one day you will look back and you will say, Jesus, thank you for what you did. I felt your arms around me. I felt you husband me. I felt you love me. And so because of this identity, because you are chosen, because you are holy, and because you are beloved, put on. Now, the word put on here does not mean a jersey that ladies gently just grape on their shoulder and it's about to fall off at any moment. You've seen that. It's like a fashion statement, like works with a belt or something. So we put it on our shoulder because it gives us more color. That's not what it means to put on. Put on means to clothe yourself and to fully immerse yourself, to be submerged in these things, to be wrapped up, to be enveloped in these things. And we put it on in our heart. The heart is the deepest place of us. It's where everything comes from. The heart is not the mind. It is not the brain. The heart is the part of us that connects with God. It is the center of our being. So as chosen, holy, and beloved, you are going to fully immerse yourself in the deepest part of you with these things. 
Let's have a look at what they are. Compassion. Mm, compassion. Some translations say tender mercies. I love this word. A person with compassion treats another one as if they are tender or sensitive to touch. Tender or sensitive to the touch. Think about the last time you had a fight with someone. Were you being tender or sensitive to the touch? You see, if you are if you are compassionate, you do not think that other people need to be more thick-skinned to handle your truths. No, you treat them like they're sensitive to the touch. I don't want to hurt. I want to go softly, tenderly is what this word means. And then kindness. I love this word. Andrew, this one's for you specifically. The word used for kindness is what they used to speak about wine when it lost its harshness with age. Have you heard the fact that old people get harsher, uglier when they get old? That's not what's supposed to happen. Any old people that will admit that they're old in this room? You are supposed to lose your harshness as you get older. Kindness has no harshness. If you are kind, there is not a harsh retaliation in a moment of a fight. Humility. In the original language, this means a lowliness of mind or thinking of someone better or more important than yourself. And then gentleness means to treat something softly, like it could break with any type of force. Now, the Greek word for gentle, theologians suggest that a better translation would have been temperate. And the actual meaning of the word is power constrained, power held back. Yeah, sometimes I fight with Rob and I'm like, I could hurt this guy. I've got words and I can use my words to, to go at him. Does anybody else do that? Or is it just me? I'm feeling very vulnerable right now. I need some me too's. Thank you. Gentleness is power restrained. And it's so interesting. Craig gave me this information last week. There are only, there's one place in scripture that Jesus speaks about his heart. And he speaks about his heart being gentle and lowly or humble. So if we're looking to replicate Jesus's heart and bring heaven to earth, we need to focus on those two things. And then patience, someone who is long-suffering. Notice that all of these characteristics have to do with how we are in relationship with others. Nothing to do with how successful we are in business. Nothing to do with how hard we work, how many hours we put in. Nothing to do with what we own, how many treasure we accumulate here, houses we build. Nothing to do with the family you were born into. These are relational qualities. And out of our identity as chosen, holy, and beloved, we put on these things. In fact, I believe that when we fully understand our identity, that we are chosen, that we are holy, and we are beloved, these things will flow out of the core of us.
And if these are missing, go back to the basics. Study your identity and start declaring over yourself this week, Jesus, I am your beloved. Give me an experience and a revelation of what that means because I can only give you what I have. If you want 500 bucks for me and I've got 10 rand in my purse, I can't give you 500. I can't love you well unless I understand how loved I am. So this is the starting place. And then Paul goes on to say that while we are immersed and sunken in these attributes, then bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Now, these words are what are called present participles. You're supposed to be impressed. (laughs) All that means that there's an ING, which means they are continuous. We've got to keep doing them. They're not one-sort acts. When our kids were little, instead of saying, I love you, we often used to say, loving you, to try and show them that our love wasn't something that was in a moment. It was a continual, ongoing experience. And forbearing with each other and forgiving is a continual, ongoing experience that we are going to have to sink into. Now, I'm not sure if it was intentional by the author, but notice that bearing with each other and forgiving each other, the bearing with comes first. I've noticed in my own life that when I bear with well, I have a lot less to forgive. You see, if we understand what forbearance is as part of the character of God, I think that if we learn to bear with, we might have less offense, less hurt. So let's look at what forbearance is. I came across a paper written by a group of researchers on forbearance. There is such a thing. Imagine your four-year-old saying to you, Mommy, when I grow up, I'm going to be a forbearance researcher. (laughs) So there were pages and pages of research, and I've summarized it into this. This is what they said. Forbearance is essential to positive relationships and maintaining harmony And it's this construct that has often been overlooked. In fact, it's not something we talk about much in our current culture. We don't use the term. It's valuable for repairing personal relationships. If you have some personal relationships that you need to repair, practice forbearance. It makes the situation more tolerable for others. Of course it does because it's the character of God. And it's a coping strategy for for interpersonal disputes. Interestingly, in some cultures, forbearance is a highly valued virtue. And they go on to say this, that forbearance embraces the qualities of kindness and tolerance while considering other people's perspective. How often in a situation do we look at a situation only through our eyes? But you see, when we are sunken and immersed in the qualities of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness, of patience, then we can see something from another perspective because we are touching them gently. We don't want to break something. We are looking at them as more valuable than ourselves and we are holding their good in our view. And then we can forbear because we can see a situation 
from their side. It's no longer about me and me winning a fight, but it's about what the other person might need. Forbearance is a significant predictor of well-being, including happiness. It's like brushing your teeth. Forbear. Practice forbearance. You're going to be happier. And it's good for family harmony. Do not raise your hands if you're missing out on family harmony. But if you need more this morning, maybe you need to walk in the practice of forbearance. And it's great for teamwork. The authors conclude that forbearance is worth studying further. Imagine that. It's a characteristic of God. Let's study it further. So let's look now at the biblical definition of forbearance. There's a slide here with the Greek originals for anybody that's interested. But basically, the biblical definition of forbearance means to hold something up or to hold someone up. Now, years ago, um, Robin and I, well, not years ago, because we do renovations pretty much every year. But one year, I decided that we were going to take out some sliding aluminum glass doors. They were getting sticky, and I was battling to open them. And they had some really obnoxious poles placed in front of them that were very much an eyesore for me. So I phoned a a door guy and asked him to come over, and he looked at the situation, and I said, this is what I want. And all he could see was the poles. And he said to me, Marilyn, you can't just take the doors and the poles out. I'm like, why? They're so ugly. And he's like, no, they might be holding something up. So he says to me, I need to get a structural engineer. So the structural engineer comes over with my four-bearing builder. And they cut this huge um, hole in the ceiling and prop up a ladder they look in. (laughs) And on the top of the poles were two bricks precariously placed, and on top of those bricks, John, how scary is this? On top of those bricks was the beam that was holding our ceiling up. And the engineer says to me, like, I don't know how this is held up for so long. And he says, before the guy puts the doors in, you need to now get a structural engineer. To make an I-beam, is that right? An I-beam to hold or prop everything up so that it doesn't fall down. That's what forbearance is. It is our ability to prop or hold someone up, especially when they are precariously falling down. You see, forbearance is not just putting up with someone. Let's go to the next slide of what forbearance is not, because I'm running out of time. Forbearance is not putting up with each other while resentment and bitterness grows. It is not that eye-rolling, you're my cross to bear. No, because Jesus is the example of forbearance, and he chose us, he set us apart, And he calls us his beloved. So the people that you are forbearing with, you choose and you love them. You don't put up with them. Can you see how different it is? Forbearance comes from and sits in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
And your forbearance is wrapped all together with love. If forbearance is beneficial, and if forbearance replicates the nature of God, and we want to be a bit of heaven on earth here for others, how are we going to go home, and instead of waddling, how are we going to fly like eagles? Because I have no doubt that each one of us has this thing inside of us that wants to grow and be like Jesus. But there are some resistances that we have to cha for change. There are common resistances. I call them roadblocks. And there are three specific roadblocks that I believe are resistances for us to practice these things that are common of all ducks. But overcoming them will help us be eagles. The first one is what's called the confirmation bias. The confirmation bias means that I will look for new information that fits what I already believe. For example, if you think that all women are bad drivers, I guarantee you, you will notice women that drive badly. And you will ignore the factual information that car insurance is cheaper for women. <laughs> Why? Because we are better drivers. <laughs> and just in case you were unsure that I was preaching something that was not truth this morning, News 24 sent me this this week. Warren Buffett summed it up really well. He said this, what the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so the prior conclusions remain intact. You have prior conclusions about people that are remaining intact. And this morning, God wants to boot those suckers out and give them a chance so that you do not stay stuck in your relationship. He wants you to see things from another perspective. And he wants you to let go of some of your previous beliefs so that you can fly like an eagle. The next one is what we call the negativity bias. Now, if you thought the confirmation bias wasn't a roadblock, have a look at this one. The negativity bias is our tendency to register negative stimuli more rarely and dwell on negative events. Humans are notorious for seeing what people do badly. We used to do this in our family. Our, my family, when we raised kids, we were so guilty of this. There's a story that I tell about how my little girl who's watching in Cape Town, Helen and Unubag, who's, and she had cleaned up her whole um, a, a bedroom. And there was, she'd been playing Barbies, and there was one Barbie shoe that was left. And I came into the room, ignored all the good work that she'd done, and where did my eyes focus? On the one little shoe. And I said to her, Court, you missed one. And these little eyes welled up and filled up with tears. And she said, Mommy, how come you can't see all the things I put away? Negativity bias. That's why. Because our eyes go to what people are doing wrong instead of what they are doing well. We're going to skip the next slide again because I don't have time. Brain look 
the heart says, look at all the good, but our brain keeps us stuck on the one blob of bad. That's the negativity bias in action. The last one, the fundamental attribution error. This one's great. The fundamental attribution error is the tendency of human beings to interpret what people do as based on bad character. The best way to explain this is with tardiness. Tardiness is this unique ability of humans to be late for events that we get invited to. Strange thing. And I get, I'm tardy. I'm guilty of tardiness. But here's what's, what happens is if I invite you to an event and you are late, the fundamental attribution error says that I will make a decision that you are late because of character, not because of your circumstances. It's why we group all these narcissists together. We have a bad experience, and then we say, well, they're all narcissists. Be careful of stereotypic groupings because it is the fundamental attribution error in action. Be careful of that. When we make a mistake, we generally will explain it as circumstantial. I got a phone call. I had one more thing to do. I just wanted to fit a few things in. We're very gentle on ourselves, but we're harsh towards others. Can you see how these three things working together create chaos in the kingdom? Confirmation bias. You did something bad to me long ago, and I'm going to look for something that fits that narrative. Negativity bias. You can't do anything right. I'm going to find that one Barbie shoe that you're doing wrong. And then the fundamental attribution error. Not only do you do bad things, but your whole character is now bad. And these three things stop us from holding each other up and propping them up. So to end, I'm going to end very quickly. Oh, I've actually got four more minutes. Okay, so to end, how do we counteract these three roadblocks? What tool can we have? Now, a tool is an interesting thing. I've got tools in our house, and I can use those tools to build things and to make something beautiful, or I can use the tool as a weapon of destruction. And sometimes I give a tool, and somebody, instead of taking that to use it as something to build something beautiful in their lives, they use it as a weapon towards someone else. Oh, you're not doing this. They use the tool. Marilyn said, do this. This tool is not to be used as a weapon of destruction. This is a tool to be used as something to create change and growth in yourself so that you can bring heaven to earth. You are not responsible for the person next to you. Say to the person next to you, I am not responsible for you. I am not going to use this tool against you. This tool came out of working with a beautiful couple that I had in counseling. And every week they would come and they were stuck in the confirmation bias, the negativity bias, and the fundamental attribution error. They had all categories that they had labeled their spouse in. And we were getting nowhere in the counseling. It was negative, 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 and I could not break them out of it. And one morning when they came into the room, they sat down on the couch, and I said to them, close your eyes 
and name all the items of green that you saw in the room. And they listed two or three items and then they kind of got stuck and then I said, now open your eyes. They opened their eyes and I said, keep listing. And all of a sudden, the list was endless. They could name this and name that and name that and they saw this book and that book and that book. Why? Because they could see what they were looking for. And what they did for homework was their only homework was to go home and look for green in each other, to look for what they each were doing well. That's all they could do. They weren't going to work on anything else. They were just going to look for the positives to try and counteract the negative things, the patterns that they had developed. The next week, they came back. They were giggling and laughing. I was like, who are you? They hadn't done anything else except they had looked for green, called it out, and they had spoken it over each other. This is not difficult to change. Looking for green is our ability to focus on what people are doing well. And guys, this is such an easy tool to do because it is a biblical truth. And I'm going to end with the scripture. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, And if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If we are going to hold each other up, if we are going to practice the character of God and allow people to experience a little bit of heaven on earth, we need to find the gold in them the way God finds the gold in us. We need to start speaking over people what God speaks over us. You are chosen, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. And so for homework today, like the couple, I ask you that as you walk out, that you find three or five or 10 or 15 people to speak something beautiful over. Find something praiseworthy. Find something golden. Find something excellent. And as you go home or as you even get in the car, shift the atmosphere and bring a heavenly experience and start calling out the gold in your spouse or your partner or your children. See what they are doing well and focus on just that today. People are starving. People are starving for positive affirmation. They are starving of worth and value. They are starving of love because we are stuck in finding what is wrong. Look for the green, guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this would not just be another word, but this would be something where your seed falls deeply inside of us. Lord, I pray that just in the space that you would surround, your Holy Spirit would drop in this place. And I pray that families and friendships and people and groups 
that all the negative memories and the negative attributions would just dissipate in this moment and that you would wipe the slate clean and that we would be able to start afresh with something beautiful. Father, do something in the families, do something in businesses, do a work in churches, do a work in friendship circles. And Holy Spirit, rest on us. Come inside of us to the deepest place. And Jesus, we pray that we would show you outside of us and that we would bring a heavenly family culture to this, to this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.